This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today on the download, well, the markets, uh, they're not great. It's uh, not not necessarily a, uh, a very rosy time to be invested into stocks, bonds, and equities because everything right now is more or less scrambling. There's really not necessarily a clear-cut path uh, out of this, and if you are an investor, now is certainly a great time to look at um, some of the alternatives that are out there for you. And we're going to be covering how to kind of best uh, best make use of some of the alternatives out there in the bulk of our presentation, in the bulk of the podcast today. But uh, to kind of cover what's going on in the markets, uh, this is part of the podcast, uh, M- Bloomberg is reporting 44% investment banking revenue cut from the second quarter to present of this year, meaning the activities and revenues generated by the large banking houses. So this was reported last month at a all com- at a, a massive investment banking conference in New York City, the likes of JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Citigroup uh, coming together and the general report averages showing roughly a 44% drop in their investment banking deaths uh, from last year to this year at current time. So that is just a, a wildly large number to think about in the context of just how much volume decrease that is for these large banks. And then that is in turn a, a little bit of a more of a canary in a coal mine for what's going on in the markets for what's affecting you directly. Because if that's showing what the banks are actually investing in, it's only a simple extrapolation to see what is actually going on for the retail investor as well. If they're pulling back and seeing decreased revenues for what they're investing in, um, it's it's a clear indication of kind of the broader scope and the health of the market as well. Now, to the point, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup are reporting increased revenues set aside for soured loans. So unfortunately, this is kind of one of those, again, writing on the wall things where the large investment banks are now taking a very uh, bearish outlook on the state of some of their mortgages. Now, this certainly isn't something that is unexpected, uh, seeing with mortgage rates increase, seeing uh, with with the Fed trying to stymie inflation, it is only kind of anticipated that we're going to see some defaults start to increase as well. Definitely anticipated. Uh, the banks, you know, in in context, are raising those reserves. The general estimate being put out by the likes of uh, Bloomberg and Reuters is somewhere in the tens of billions of dollars. So certainly not the kind of uh, trillions of dollars of market reset in the real estate markets that we saw back in 2008, or sorry, six, seven, and eight, but definitely still something to keep an eye on. And especially if the large uh, banks with all of their capacity to do market research and to analyze things are taking this approach, it's definitely something to look at, especially if you are again, looking to invest in real estate or you have real estate holdings, uh, there could definitely be some opportunity there. Just like we saw back in the early aughts, there was definitely opportunity for investors to come in and either take some of these subject to, uh, do some some creative financing to help people out to get into real estate at a cheaper value because as everyone you know can certainly commensurate, commensurate with right now, real estate prices are absolutely wild. Uh, now it is a little bit of a of a trailing indicator because we're not going to necessarily see what the prices of home sales are because it's about a 30 day lag on you know when things tend to close and we when we actually get that data. But already right now we're starting to see about a 10% drop in new inventory uh, pricing uh, in general. 
So depending on where you're at, most of the active listings are going with price cuts instead of price increases, which is kind of the first time we've seen that in roughly the past 18 or 20 months. So it was, it was right around uh, this time during the during uh, the main bulk of COVID in 2020 that we started to see the prices start to really, really take off. And it really didn't cool down until about the last month or so. So that's definitely something to take into consideration, although you know there certainly is... Turmoil and tumult going on in the real estate market. Keep your eye on it because there's going to be going to be opportunity. And to echo the old adage, when there's blood in the streets, buy property. <laughs> so uh, it's definitely kind of a fitting term to look at when it comes to what might be going on in the real estate markets. You know, where there is decline, there's also opportunity. So don't necessarily, I would say, from the investing standpoint, take that too harshly. Just understand that there is certainly opportunity out there for you as the investor to make money, um, even when things are turning down. You just have to know kind of the correct places to look. Wells Fargo CFO is reporting that the bank's revenue from new mortgages could fall by as much as half in the next 12 months. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to see half of all their mortgage mortgages end up in default. What they're saying here is that the revenue generated by issuing new mortgages, so origination fees, points, things like that, they're anticipating about a 50% slide on that. Now, what does that mean? Well, essentially, it just means that less new loans are going to be written, which is certainly not unanticipated considering Jerome Powell and the Fed have already increased rates by over 100 basis points, and they have indicated that they are willing to do so throughout the next few meetings of the Fed throughout the remainder of the year. So while it's good information to have, and it's always good to watch what the big banks are doing to help try to inform you on what maybe you should be doing and kind of where the market's headed, it's certainly definitely anticipated that new revenues from mortgage origination and things like that would be sliding. Granted, half is a big number of taking 50% uh, anticipated 50% over the next 12 months. It's a big hit to to any financial institution and to see someone as big as Wells Fargo projecting that much. And obviously, we all hope that maybe this number is a little bit uh, hyperbolic or maybe a little bit inflated. But you know, big companies like that, especially financial companies, tend to try to get their numbers right. So if they're projecting that, then you know maybe they know something we don't, or they have you know smarter people looking at this stuff than everyone else. But uh, one would hope that that number maybe is a little bit skewed. Now, moving on from the financial sector, going into manufacturing and tech, uh, tech just getting hammered. Not even worth kind of pointing out the big losers in that um, in that market segment. Pretty much all of the. <clears throat> Pretty much all of the main social media platforms are down heavy, um, not including what's go- the the fiasco that's going on right now with Twitter, with Elon Musk, Elon Musk saying that he's pulling out of the merger and purchase of that uh, of Twitter directly to take it private. So we'll see what happens with that. It's anticipated that this is going to be tied up in legal disputes for at least the next few years. So nothing necessarily new to report on that. Not really worth digging in too far into that. It was reported last week that uh, he was trying to pull out of it. So we'll bring you updates as they become available if there's anything really interesting happening on the Twitter uh, Elon Musk front. Now into the manufacturing, the electric and to segue on the mention of Elon Musk and, and Tesla, obviously he's the CFO there. Electric vehicle manufacturer Rivian is uh, the company that actually was the first to market with an all-electric uh, pickup truck. Now, this pickup truck was showing a lot of promise. Again, the the manufacturer Tesla had teased almost three years ago now the Cybertruck with the infamous uh, ball being thrown through the armored glass of the truck. 
uh, many uh, good good laughs were had at that expense when that happened on stage. But the truck was still not released. So Rivian came through and filled the vacuum and actually released a two production model of an all electric uh, pickup truck. And from all outward appearances, is pretty quality product. However, uh, they are seeing uh, the uh, the the effects of kind of the market shift and manufacturing issues and being a first to market is that they are now anticipating a major restructuring effort in order to cut costs because sales projections were not met. And they're looking at a removal or a downsizing of over a hundred jobs of middle management and upper level uh, executives in order to try to streamline their costs. So, you know, it's never fun to see a new startup, especially one with promising technology and manufacturing come under this type of uh, constraint, but it is what it is. And we'll definitely see what happens with that. I definitely wish them the best and hoping that their restructuring efforts uh, are in the best health of their company. Fitness brand Peloton, who was the uh, brunt of many jokes, especially with the uh, the de- on-screen death of a character in the Sex in the City reboot, uh, which didn't help any of their problems earlier this year, is now fully outsourcing all of their manufacturing and assembly. They stated that they started this year with a share price of $32.23. And as of today, 7.12 at a mid-afternoon, they are trading at a paltry $9.26 per share. So, Again, never like to see something bad happen to any company, but with uh, how things were going with them, it's definitely not unanticipated and the handling of many uh, different public relations issues and let's just call it bad press certainly has not helped this, but it's uh, definitely a, a kind of a, 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 a glum outlook if they're going to have to stop all of their in-house manufacturing, essentially are just going to be outsourcing every single thing with regard to assembly and manufacturing. And following... <laughs> Excuse me. In the following fashion of crypto lending platform Voyager, uh, with uh, the downfall and the freezing of withdrawals from Celsius, uh, to make this a little bit clear, in following suit of the horrible situation that is happening in Celsius with crypto lending and staking, crypto lending and staking platform Voyager has frozen withdrawals last week in an eerily similar uh, structure to what was happening with Celsius. So essentially people <clears throat> had been taking roughly, I think it was almost a hundred billion dollars in withdrawals, uh, two weeks ago. And then all of a sudden, uh, they fr- Voyager froze all new outgoing deposits while they try to meet their obligations. So, you know, again, this is basically the same thing happened in the end of the 1920s with uh, commercial banks in the U.S. There is a run on deposits, uh, withdrawals of deposits, and they didn't have enough on hand to meet their obligations to their to their clients. And then they had to freeze the withdrawals because they didn't have enough to pay out those uh those those obligations. So again, this along with what is happening or has happened with Celsius is very disheartening. Uh, you know, definitely wish all of the people the most speedy recovery of any losses that they had with this. But again, it's going to show that with how unregulated and more of a wild, wild west attitude that has been taken with the cryptocurrency markets and the lack of regulation that's out there, this stuff can still be very dangerous, especially if you're not uh, safekeeping your tokens directly or if you are staking or giving over your tokens and coins to people for investment on your behalf. You really need to do your due diligence and read through the fine print of the terms of service of these things because you can definitely be left 
uh, with an empty bag at the end of the day, if things go south and these places aren't properly capitalized or they aren't uh, kind of regulated or audited in a proper fashion like we have with the U.S. banking system, for better or worse, you know, make fun of the U.S. banking system, uh, you know, for, for what it is. But there are safeguards in place to directly protect depositors in those kind of scenarios like we have with the, uh, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, uh, protecting against losses like this. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, with cryptocurrency, although it does have currency in the name, it is a tangible person, personally taxable asset as treated as personal property. And you need to understand that if you're investing with some of these platforms, that there can be a considerable risk to the underlying investment f- just for the solvency of the company. So investors beware. Do your due diligence. Make sure you understand what you're getting into, especially in the cryptocurrency space, uh, because you know we really. I, I hate reporting on stuff like this. I, I never like to see it happen, uh, but you know it's it's definitely something that is important for people to understand, especially if you are invested in cryptocurrency or interested in staking or things like that. To really make sure that you understand the terms of service of what you're doing, and you know do your research on the solvency and the business practices of the underlying company that you're investing with. Well, this has been the download. Today on the what is, what is a bear market? Well, it's important to understand. And of course, I I hate to kind of, again, be as downtrodden on some things. Pretty much everything I reported in the download is not great for the underlying stock markets, but it's important to understand what a bear market is. You hear these terms thrown around and it's important to be an educated investor. A bear market is when a market experiences prolonged price declines. It typically describes a condition in which security prices fall 20% or more from a recent highs among widespread pessimism or negative investor sentiment. Now, this has happened twice this year. It doesn't necessarily have a time frame for it, but we have seen 20% drops happen in recent history. Um, so yes, we are you know classically in a bear market right now, but bear markets are often associated with declines in overall market or indexes like the S&P 500. But individual securities or commodities can also be considered in a bear market if they experience a decline of 20% or more over a sustained period of time. We're seeing this right now in the tech sector. Essentially, uh, tech stocks, social media stocks, and the like have more or less been in a bear market for the last three months. And now the broader market is kind of following suit with a you know overall overall decline in market value. Bear markets also accompany general economic downturns. This is a recession, and they may be contrasted by the upward trending bull markets. This is a bull market, and this has been the what is. So today, what I really want to talk to people about is the importance of understanding how some of these market downturns can really create opportunities for investors uh, in the market. Now, part of being able to invest in a given market, and today we're going to be focusing primarily on real estate and syndications, but you can kind of extrapolate this to a larger degree for anything else, but we're going to be focusing pretty much on that and how it relates to certain types of taxes that people might encounter, especially when trying to finance purchases of either either property or other types of assets through a qualified retirement plan. Now, the two we're going to compare and contrast today are going to be IRAs and 401ks, because it's very important to understand how things like UBIT taxes and UDFI taxes can greatly impact 
investor returns and how to avoid some of these as well. So let's kind of start at the beginning and understand really what is the primary difference in these two types of retirement plans or these tax shelters that we're going to be talking about. An IRA or individual retirement arrangement is an account that basically anyone can have. If you're a U.S. taxpayer and you want to have a, some type of tax advantage savings plan outside the scope of Social Security, you can open up an IRA. Now, IRAs kind of come in two different flavors. One is going to be your pre-tax or traditional IRA, and one is going to be your post-tax or Roth IRA, meaning that with the traditional IRA, you get a tax deduction on the way in, but then you don't, you, you get a tax deduction on the way in, and then you pay tax on the way out, but you don't pay tax on any of the earnings in between. With a Roth IRA or post-tax IRA, essentially you pay all of your tax up front and then pay nothing on the tax no, pay no tax when you take distributions in retirement. And again, just like with the traditional IRA, you pay no tax on the interim of any earnings that you have within that plan. So it's a really easy way to kind of understand those two. Now, one of the downsides of a Roth and traditional IRA are the relatively low contribution limits. Depending on your age, it's either going to be six dollars or $7,000 uh, for the amount of money that you can add into one of those plans on an annual basis. Now, what's really important, especially in real estate, where we're probably going to see a lot of uh, opportunity come up for people, are being able to use things like solo 401ks to invest in these types of properties. And we'll kind of get into that with some strategies when it comes to financing property purchases, because although property will probably be taking a price cut in the coming in the coming months and year it's still extremely inflated right now so if you're trying to get in early or if you're just trying to acquire more real estate understanding how to utilize financing within these types of accounts can be of great benefit to you and making sure that you essentially pay as little in taxes as humanly possible with regard to doing this correctly now again IRAs, anyone can have one. You can either do six or $7,000, or you can roll over funds from an old employer 401k to these plans as well. Now, with solo 401ks, you get a significantly higher amount of money that you can add into these plans on an annual basis. You can, def if you're self employed, and we'll get into some of the some of the metrics for making sure that you qualify for this, you can defer up to $20,500 of your compensation per year of just what you pay yourself. Uh, you also get a $6,500 kicker if you're over the age of 60 and a half, and then you can contribute up to 25% of your net operating income up to $61,000 or $67,500, uh, depending on your age, into that plan as well. So with these plans, you get a lot more contribution allowance for these, especially if you're self-employed. And self-employed doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be doing this with the intention of making contributions. If you have any type of side uh, business, side hustle, you, know, you sell widgets on eBay, you have an LLC for investing in real estate, typically you can qualify for one of these plans. And we'll get into what some of the uh, precluding factors are for these, these plans as well. But it's important to understand the context of this because there is a great tax benefit uh, in the exemption from certain types of taxes, especially when it comes to financing property purchases with 401ks that is not available to IRAs. Now, when it comes to trying to buy property with either of these, especially with what I anticipate being a large amount of influx of new inventory or foreclosures or REOs that are going to be coming onto the market in the coming months and year, 
financing property purchases in order to be able to take advantage of as many properties as you can is going to be very important. Now, when it comes to financing in these types of accounts, it is very important to understand the how to do it correctly and what it's also going to mean in the broader context of taxes that might be applicable to one type of an account versus another. So before we get too far into that, let's also dig a little bit farther into uh, the differences and some of the benefits and drawbacks between 401ks and IRAs. So when you have a IRA, again, anyone can have one. If you're going to look at if I qualify for a 401k and what that means is that a 401k, you have to you have to look at it from the fact of do you have employees with your business? Because if you have employees, these things can get a little bit more expensive. Now, um, employees are going to be generally defined as anyone that works over a thousand hours per year or at least 500 hours per year over three consecutive years for you. Now, 401ks have some very distinct benefits over your IRA. One, you have significantly higher funding limits. You can defer a larger amount of your earned income. So you can do employee and employer contributions. You can have rollovers coming in from external IRAs to fund these types of an account. You also have access to tax-free personal loans. So if you also want to invest in property personally, or maybe an investment doesn't make sense to do through an IRA, an IRA, you can't take a loan against it. With a 401k, you can take out up to half of your balance or $50,000 to do something personal with it, and you have five years to repay that. You also have the ability to escape certain types of taxes called unrelated debt finance income taxes with a 401k, which is what we're going to get into pretty in-depth uh, as well. And then you also have the ability to have traditional pre-tax and post-tax portions of a 401k, whereas with an IRA, you have to have those separated. So you can't have a Roth IRA and Roth, uh, Roth IRA and Roth. Roth IRA and traditional IRA combined, they have to be segregated. Now, looking at this, what does it look like to contribute to a 401k, you know, kind of getting into the front end of this? Well, with an IRA, remember, it's six or $7,000. But let's say you're self-employed and you have a $100,000 salary. Well, with a solo 401k, you could contribute up to $44,500 to that plan per year, you would have a $20,500 deferral of salary. And then you would also have up to 25% of that $100,000 additionally to add in to that. So you'd have $45,500 that you could plug in to that plan per year, as opposed to just $7,000 in a traditional IRA. The cool part about it is that you can also make that those contributions pre or post tax or anywhere in the middle when it comes to actually how you um, create those contributions. So you can have a Roth 401k, you can have a traditional 401k, and you can combine them and essentially invest them as one if you would like. So the other big benefit of a 401k is that you have a lot of other flexible uh, administrative options for these types of plans. With a IRA, you have to have a custodian. So you have to have someone like Advanta IRA, basically overseeing and managing the actions of the IRA. You can't sign anything directly on behalf of the IRA. The custodian has to administer all the cash deposits and also all of the administrative uh, overhead with regard to the assets as well. So it's important to think that you have a little bit less control, but you also have a much lower barrier to entry with an IRA versus a 401k. 401ks are trustee-driven plans, so you as the business owner can essentially direct any and all actions of the 401k, unlike with an IRA, you can directly do self 
self-administration, uh, checkbook control. You can do all of your own plan reporting. You have a lot more flexibility on how you're actually going to administer the plan than you do with an IRA, which again, for real estate investors can typically be a big benefit because a lot of people like to act quickly. A lot of people, especially in real estate, like the feeling of control that they have. You know, If they're used to it with their LLC or trust, you get that additional benefit of tighter control and a little bit more oversight as being the trustee of the plan. So with that said, again, it does bring up the fact of, you know, which one's going to be right for you. Again, you can finance property purchases in an IRA or a 401k. So it doesn't necessarily matter which one you have. You can finance the property purchases directly in either of those. However, IRAs are going to be subjected to what's called unrelated debt finance income tax. And this is where I really kind of want to spend some time. So a lot of people think that if you invest in real estate, uh, you have you might be subject to what's called UBIT, or if you invest uh, in financed real estate, meaning the IRA takes out a loan to buy the real estate, you're going to be subjected to UBIT as well. So there's two different important taxes that you need to understand that are out there for IRAs. One is UBIT, which is unrelated business income tax. This is a tax related specifically when you invest in an active trader business. So there's a few different ways that this can apply. So if you buy an active an active trader business. So if an IRA or for that matter, a 401k invests in some type of active trader business that is not taxed as a C-corp, then it's going to pass through a liability essentially of owning a active trader business and a tax shelter, which is UBIT. So essentially that is going to be a leveling the playing field tax. So if you invest in, let's say, an LLC membership of a coin laundromat, or you are trying to invest in some type of general partner position in a uh, partnership agreement, then UBIT tax can certainly apply and it can apply to 401ks as well. A lot of people like to say that 401ks are exempted from UBIT and really they're only exempted from what's called UDFI, which I'll get into in a moment. So why am I bringing up investing in businesses? I thought, you know, people are saying, oh, I thought you were going to be talking about real estate. And I am. But it's important to understand because these terms uh, get used interchangeably a lot when they are not. So UBIT and UDFI are not the same thing. However, UDFI or unrelated debt finance income tax is a subset of UBIT. So to say that something is subject to UBIT, you really need to get a little bit more context. So UBIT, again, investing, investing in an active trader business, then you are going to be subject to UBIT. And what that means is that the the profits over and above your underlying basis in your investment can be taxed at trust rates. What are trust rates? So it's 10% of the first $2,650. Uh, it is going to be 24% of the, of the income between 2,651 and 9,550. And it's going to be 35% of everything from 9,551 to 10,000. And then, uh, and then, and then from there. So, that is really kind of what you need to understand is that trust rates can get expensive really quickly. However, unlike normal circumstances, IRAs don't file tax returns when you do have a UBIT liability or a UDFI liability. You do get to take advantage of things like depreciation, uh, tax write-offs, things like that um, in, in doing that. Now, that's kind of where I want to stop with UBIT. It's just important to understand that it's out there and 401ks are not exempt from it. But let's talk about UDFI. So let's kind of bring this back. So if you want to have your IRA invested in real estate, and especially if you want to start taking advantage of some of these new deals that are out there right now, or that are going to be coming around, maybe just buying properties cash 
isn't necessarily the best look. You want to try to maximize the volume of properties you can get deals on. And how do you do that? Well, you borrow additional money. <clears throat> now, if you want to borrow money in any type of retirement plan, it has to be what's called non-recourse. So if you're primarily familiar with uh, residential family, uh, single family loans, you're probably not necessarily too familiar with what non-recourse is. Essentially, non-recourse means that in the event of default, the lender can only come after the underlying security of the loan, meaning that they can't come after you personally. You haven't offered any type of personal assets as collateral. You haven't offered any type of your personal credit worthiness to the loan. They can only foreclose on the property. So these are a lot more common in commercial multifamily. If you're a syndicator and listening to this, you're definitely probably familiar with that. But it's important to understand if you want to finance with an IRA, you have to utilize non-recourse debt. Same thing with a 401k. Now, with an IRA, you are going to be subjected to what's called UDFI, or Unrelated Debt Finance Income Tax. Now, this is where the reason that I'm bringing up solo 401ks is important is because if you qualify for a solo 401k, you are exempted from the Unrelated Debt Finance Income Tax that would otherwise be applied to that deal. Now, we'll get into the numbers in a minute, but it's important to understand the basics of what I'm saying is that a solo 401k can finance property purchases. So again, everything being done without any taxable liability can finance the property purchases within that account. So not paying any taxes on your gains, not paying any type of taxes on rental revenue or anything like that. And you get to keep all of that money. And the only thing that you're out is just the... Um, the interest rate on the loan, you don't have any additional taxes, unlike an IRA, which essentially would have to pay a UDFI liability. Now, how do you calculate that? The way you calculate a UDFI liability is you take your underlying principal balance as of January 1, and then you take your balance as of the first of every month, and then get your average of your underlying um, underlying uh, principle for the year. And then you divide that by the amount of profit that you have made on that particular investment over that same course of that year. And then that gives you what your total liability is that's going to potentially be subjected to UDFI. Now, the good thing is when your IRA files a tax return, which is called 990T, you get to take advantage of depreciation expenses, write-offs, and everything like that. So you get to try to reduce that liability as much as possible. Now, that's great. But at the end of the day, the IRA is going to have to file a tax return, which is additional expense. You have to have it prepared, filed, and you still might owe money to the IRS. But it it is doable to finance property purchases within IRA accounts. Now, the huge benefit, especially, and again, why I brought this up and why I want to have a podcast on this now, is that if you qualify for a solo 401k and you want to try to start you know, really hammering in with some real estate investments when these prices start dropping like they're probably about to do, you can do the finance property purchases in a 401k. You don't have to file 990T. You can finance as much as you want. So you could finance 100% of the property price if you can get someone to write the correct non-recourse loan for it. And you have zero UDFI liability. 401k plans are exempted from that type of tax liability. So, so long as you're not investing in an active trader business and you just want to finance property purchases, you can do it 100% directly through the 401k without any particular type of issue. Now, that is a huge benefit to the investor. If you can take tax qualified money and essentially 
turbocharge it by utilizing financing and not have to have any other type of undue tax reporting or something that's going to be eating away at your profits past just you know what the interest rate on your loan is, then that is going to well in a way put you in a much better situation than if you if you weren't utilizing this type of, of investing strategy. Now let's kind of look at it from you know the the aspects of how this actually would look in let's say a case study. So if a project is leveraged 70%, so let's say you're investing into some type of limited partnership because uh, debt passes through entities. And a lot of times entities uh, are popular for investing in real estate. So if you're investing with a few partners in a limited partnership or an LLC, and there's going to be debt on the property, and again, it has to be non-recourse debt, then that's going to pass through to your you as the investor. So if you're using the 401k or the IRA, it's important to understand you know just how important the difference between these two is and the fact that not all of your profits would potentially be eaten up. So let's say a project is 70% leveraged. So 30% down, 70% leveraged. Then 70% of the income or the quarterly distributions and or the payoff returned to the IRA is going to be subject to UBIT or UDFI. If the IRA receives a K-1 from, let's say, a syndication or a partnership showing the income and allocations, then that's which number you're going to use to help calculate this. Interest income is exempt from UDFI. So use of a C-Corp, so let's say you invested into some type of uh, an entity that's going to be uh, taxed as a C-Corp is one way to block UDFI in a in an IRA. It doesn't necessarily, again, matter in a 401k, but if you're trying to structure this and you only are able to qualify for an IRA, then structures with C-Corps are going to be your friend to help you try to avoid this. But let's say you can't, you're invested in some type of LLC, limited partnership, or you're just directly invested into you know some type of, of real estate directly that has debt. Um, even if it is going to apply, you know, is it going, are your returns in the IRA going to necessarily be better is kind of what you need to look at. So when it comes to paying it, the IRA files, IRS form 990T, you can deduct a percentage of the expenses and use cost segregation and depreciation. You also get a, an automatic thousand dollar deduction for the IRAs when doing this. Uh, it's paid out at trust rates. Again, taxes paid by the IRA and does not show up on your, uh, personal tax return. Losses can be carried forward when you invest in real estate with an IRA if you file 990T. But remember, solo 401ks don't have to worry about any of this kind of stuff. So if you want to invest in real estate with your retirement funds, especially with all the inventory that's probably going to be coming up, this is really a good thing to understand of you know maybe trying to alter a few things that you're doing personally to maybe try to qualify for a solo 401k. Now let's take a look at a hundred thousand dollar investment with utilizing a um, with, with utilizing an IRA versus what it would look like with maybe a um, solo four hundred one k. So let's say you have a total annual income of eight percent. So in your first year, you get eight thousand dollars. The amount of the income subject to UDFI is going to be 70% year one, 60% year two, and 50% year three. So that's $5,600 in the first year. Your automatic deduction that year is going to be $1,000. Uh, you get a uh, deductions and cost segregation and accelerated depreciation of $5,600. So the taxable income the first year is zero. So your IRA completely tax exempt in this scenario, investing in some type of partnership gets $8,000 back. Year two, it's going to adjust a little bit. So again, you get that 8% return. So you get $8,000 on your 100. The amount of income subject to the UDFI is going to be 4,800. 
you get $1,000 automatic deduction. The accelerated uh, depreciation, cost segregation, and deductions this year is only going to be a thousand bucks because they took it all up front. And then the taxable income is going to be uh, $2,800. So that is going to be the 24% tax bracket. The second year, you got to pay $672 on 990T. So your investor return, that again is completely tax exempt after that, is going to be $7,328. Year three, you get $8,000 but let's say the project sells. So you get $20,000 in profit. So the amount of income this year is $14,000 that you have to look at. Then you have your $1,000 deduction, cost seg, deductions, everything going to be $1,000 this year. The taxable income year three is going to be $12,000. And this is where you get you know, kind of in the red a little bit is that you're going to have to pay 35% tax on the IRA return. So you have to kick out $4,200 to Uncle Sam that year. So again, in that case, you still take home $23,800 tax-free, but you did have to pay a nice little chunk of change to Uncle Sam in, in this scenario where you had financing. So your total annual income in this whole thing is $44,000. And the total amount of UBIT that you had to pay is going to be $4,872. So again, at the end of this, you get to take home just a little bit north of $39,000 in total profits that get to grow in perpetuity and compound with completely tax-free uh, growth throughout the remaining time that it's in an account. Now, remember, IRAs of any kind are going to be subject in this scenario to this type of taxation. It doesn't matter if it's a Roth IRA, SEP IRA, traditional IRA, all IRAs are subject to this. And the beauty of all these numbers is that if you did this through a 401k, not only did you have to not worry about doing any of the 990T filings, doing any of the calculations, it all just returns directly back to to you directly uh, from the IRA, the only thing, or to the 401k. The only thing you would have to worry about is how much interest is eating into your total profits. And if you're investing in some type of limited partnership, you're just looking at the K-1 anyway. Um, obviously, if you're doing this on a little bit more of a micro level with the um, the 401k buying the property directly, then you know you need to take into consideration a lot more of kind of what's going on with the uh, the amount of interest you're paying on the loan and how much you're actually taking home. But you know, almost any real estate investor can kind of look at that to make sure that they are uh, kind of protecting themselves um, within within that structure. So let's just go over a couple of the pros and cons of using IRAs and 401ks, and then uh, we'll kind of bring this in for a landing. So pros of using a 401k, not subject to UDFI on income related to leverage real estate. You can do a lot more tweaking with regard to how you administer these plans. So you can have direct checkbook access with them. You can have a more uh, traditional kind of IRA approach where you have the custodian or administrator being a little bit more involved. Um, you can fund these things a bunch of different ways from other IRAs and 401k plans, and you have significantly higher contribution limits and the ability to take personal loans with 401ks. The downsides to 401ks is you have to have a valid sponsoring and in business to have one. Just because you want one doesn't necessarily mean you qualify for one. So you need to make sure that you have a qualifying trader business, basically just meaning that you have some type of business activity. And you know, if you give me a shout, I am certainly happy to help you out with figuring out if you qualify for a solo 401k. Um, you need to have some annual valid contributions to this. Uh, you might have some additional reporting costs past the IRA if you went that route. And as the trustee and plan owner, uh, you are responsible for all IRS reporting. Some of the pros with an IRA, 
they're definitely easier to establish. Um, they're typically going to be cheaper to administer. But the big subject is that UBIT and UDFI can rear its ugly head a lot quicker and it'd be a lot harder to avoid than simply using a solo 401k. So the headache of trying to qualify and do a solo 401k, especially if you want to try to leverage real estate purchases, uh, really isn't too bad considering the headache of every single year having to file 990T, in, in my opinion. Now, there are certain ways to avoid it by using block corporations such as C-Corps, but then, you know, again, you're going to potentially be subjecting IRA investments to corporate taxes, <laughs> which is this whole other, other type of issue. So at the end of the day, you know, you do have a, a clear path forward on seeing how you can actually uh, really try to put the pedal down and, you know, take advantage of what's, you know, probably going to be a fantastic opportunity for people to invest in real estate if you're well positioned and utilizing the correct tools to make sure that one, you can have access to as many investment opportunities as possible, but more importantly, making sure that you get to take home as much of those hard-earned profits as you can, because it's not about how much you make, it's about how much you take home and UBIT and UDFI taxes can eat into that stuff very quickly. And being able to have a investment vehicle like a 401k that's going to completely exempt you from having to even worry about the UDFI or the UBIT portion of financing property purchases is, in my opinion, one of the biggest sweetheart deals that the IRS gives us as real estate investors. So with that said, this has been the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney. If you have any questions on this stuff, always feel free to reach out to us. We are more than happy to help anyone try to navigate these uh, troubled times to try to get you in the best position as possible to make some good investment decisions and you know be able to uh, you know really take advantage of what's coming down the pipeline for us. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.